please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Very appropriate song, Tracy, on man in his own image made. Thank you so much. And we need to sing it next week as well. <laughs> so Genesis chapter 3, let me read to you from this chapter, just the first five verses uh, for review. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray. Father, as we look at chapter 3, this pivotal chapter in all the Bible, the answer to all the woe that we see around us and experience even in our own lives, the, the sickness, the death of loved ones and the sadness of life. Father, help us to get a hold of these truths and to recognize that just as you told Adam and Eve before they did what they did, the consequences that they would face, even now you are giving us the answer to why the world is the way it is and why there is evil and why there is the results of sin, which is death and sadness and wars and struggles and violence. Father, help us to believe these things and to translate them into uh, our own circumstances and to not forget that even though Adam and Eve sinned and sin passed into the world and so death and all are sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God, even though you have made a way out for us, and that is our hope through Jesus Christ. And even in the midst of the suffering, we can rejoice if we know Christ and are in Christ. So let that thought comfort us and encourage us even as we recount the history of the fall of mankind into sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of review, we have been looking at Genesis chapter 3 and trying to answer the question, how did we get here and see the world the way it is from Genesis 1 and 2, where they all lived in harmony. Adam and Eve were in love with one another, in love with their creator, God, and God provided everything for them to lack nothing Food, fellowship, there was no sickness, no death, everything was wonderful. And today we look around and it's a world filled with violence and war and senseless murder of innocents and famines and murderous pandemics. It's a world filled with disorder, disunity, conflict, chaos, pain, suffering. How, what, what happened? And Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 answers that question very, very succinctly and very well. John MacArthur once said this, Genesis 3 is one of the most vitally important chapters in all the Bible. It's the foundation of everything that comes after it, 
And without it, little else in Scripture or in life itself makes sense. It's really true. It tells us how we got from that pristine beauty of the Garden of Delights that Adam and Eve experienced to what we see happening even in our own lives today. So last week we broke Genesis 3, broke into Genesis 3, and we just looked at two simple uh, thoughts uh, taken from the text. And the first is the serpent's identity. Who is this serpent that was more subtle or more crafty than any of the creatures that God created? And then secondly, we looked at uh, the woman's seduction, the seduction of Eve. And I just want to go over those points just to remind us, and then we'll get into the rest of the story here. So the serpent's identity we found by tracing um, Scripture and looking at the history through Scripture of this one and his description in other parts of Scripture. In Revelation 12, 9, all the way to the other end of the Bible, the last book in the Bible from the first to the last, in 12, 9, we read, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then a few short chapters after that, in Revelation 20, verse 2, we read, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's, of course, talking about um, the millennial kingdom being ushered in and the devil will be bound for 1,000 years during that millennial period of time, and Christ will reign as king on the throne in Jerusalem. Well, in the last book of the Bible, he's referred to as that serpent of old, which brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It's an identification of that serpent. He's called the devil and Satan, and in those verses in Revelation, they also reveal that he is a deceiver. He is craftier than any beast that God had made. Crafty means to be subtle or shrewd or sly. And such a description coupled with the Revelation passage tells us that the serpent of old deceives the whole world. You wonder, you know, some of us talk to our loved ones and our family members and uh, we're truth bearers. We have received Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and we have been walking with him for a time and we read the Bible faithfully and listen to sermons and, and study the Bible and we're truth bearers and, and we talk to some of our relatives and it's like they haven't got a clue. And it, we scratch our heads. How can they not see things the way they are? And the reason is is because the devil deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. That word deceives means to lead into error, to seduce, to to lead astray. To deceive means to to cause to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. Um, Many of us know people who believe, categorically believe lies. No matter what we do to try to point out that this is not true, they they insist. Um, Never more is that true uh, in this day and age than those who are pursuing their authentic selves, uh, totally dismissing the truth from God's word very clearly that there is a divine binary. There is male and there is female. Although there's starting to be some voices that are speaking out against that and saying this is, this is impossible. What is being promoted here is impossible and we need to pray that that would continue on 
because it's just not true. So as we saw last week, it's exactly what the serpent did with the woman. We see his craftiness, his, his subtlety um, come true in the story of what happened in the garden with the woman. So the serpent's identity is that he is that anointed cherub that rebelled against God and desired to transcend even God, his creator. And we see that or saw that last week in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, where it talks about this one that was so marvelous, so beautiful, so wise, and yet he wanted to be like the Most High. Now, the seduction of the woman, we see that Eve sinned by being seduced and deceived. He began by causing doubt in her mind about God's word. Indeed, he said, has God said to you that you may not eat from any tree of the garden? So he forced her thinking to move in that direction where he emphasized the restrictiveness of God. When in reality, God said, from any tree in the garden you may freely eat, stressing the generosity, the bountifulness of his provision as their creator. So it's easy to see how doubt might come into the woman's mind with the way the serpent put it. And it is, I ask the question, is it, is it possible that so bountiful a creator should deny the liberty of eating from any tree? That's what he was saying. How, if he's so great and so bountiful and so generous, how is it that you can not eat and don't have the liberty of eating of any tree. Well, that's just the opposite of what he really said. To what purpose, the devil would say, to what purpose was that tree made if, it, if it's not to be tasted? Man, I'm almost tempted, right? You listen to that and you think of that in the garden. So the woman's answer misrepresents God and his word. The serpent twisted God's word, causing doubt in Eve's mind, then it also is important to note that he intentionally bypassed Adam and went directly to Eve, the woman. Now, Eve was created to be man's helper, a helpmeet. And she was created to live within the sphere of his loving protection and under his leadership. We're not talking here toxic masculinity, whatever that is. We do know that there are men that are abusive. There are women that are abusive as well. Some have said that people are dangerous. Yeah, they are. In an unregenerate state, they are very dangerous. Think of World War II. Think of Mao. Think of all the the heartache and, and murder of innocence that mankind is imposed upon one another. But here we see Eve independent from Adam answering the serpent's question. And Eve's answer to the question added to God's word. Actually, she had already fallen to the seduction because her addition to God's word stressed the prohibition and emphasized the negative, just like the serpent had done in his questioning her. She said, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Or touch it. He he didn't say that. Now, Satan builds upon this initial attack on God's integrity, because that's exactly what it was, 
And seeing the woman's freedom to misrepresent God's word, the serpent goes further and he directly contradicts God's word now. He says, for in the day you eat of it, God said, you will surely die. And the serpent says, you surely will not die. Complete opposite of what God said, but she was on a path, wasn't she? And Satan's final line of temptation maligned God's character. And this is perhaps the most vile of all. Satan enticed Eve with a false promise of what she would gain by simply ignoring God's authority and eating the fruit. He said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The unholy desire to be like God, to be like the Most High, was a great evil for was first found in him until iniquity was found in you. Right? That anointed cherub. Scripture reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will be like the Most High. He appealed to that illicit desire, even in the woman, to be more than God had called her to be. And he does it to us every time we sin. Every time we sin. We are no different. Just as his own illicit lust craved to be more than God created him to be, so Eve craved to be more than God created her to be. Now notice, this is a common feature of all temptation. That's why I say it's still around today. In all of this, there is not a word of the danger but impunity and advantage is promised. This deadly advice he covers with a pretense of greater kindness and care than God actually had for her. He's holding out on you, Eve. There's more goodies to be gained. Don't trust him. Satan never reveals the horrible consequences of succumbing to the sin. He never opens up or exposits what it meant that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He only projected the benefits. And so, with that, I'd like to read verses 6 all the way to 13 in Genesis 3. Now, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Interesting, she gave to her husband who was with her, with her. What, did he just jump in now? (laughs) I think he was with her the whole time. He just was quiet. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord 
God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. (laughs) Wow. That's it. That's what happened in the garden. This is so packed. Last week's sermon was packed as well, and I thank God that we're recording them, because if if you get lost taking notes, you can go back and just listen. And I do a lot of cross-referencing because the Bible interprets itself, as I've so often said. And today is going to be no different, so buckle up your seatbelts. There's a lot here. Temptation is an enticement away from God through unbelief and into a lie. And though... Initiated by Satan, clearly Eve was drawn away by her own desires. Scripture explains it this way. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires, and then desire, and then um, when it has conceived, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. We took that from James 1, 14 and 15 last week, and we talked quite an in depth about that and about temptation and how it works like that. So reasoning that the fruit was useful and it was beautiful and that it would make her wise, Eve was deceived in her thinking and then she ate. Three things that snared her. She saw the tree was good for food. Who can argue that fact? It looks like the other food that's in the garden. And why would God disallow us from eating the food? And she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. I, you know, we always talk about the apple. There's, it doesn't say apple, it says fruit. <laughs> so, you know, discard that from your mind. But it was a fruit, and it must have been beautiful. It says it was a delight to the eyes, so that, that's tugging on her. And then she considered it desirable to make her wise. And that's the illicit desire in her heart that arose. So Eve's temptation came from without. The devil tempted her, but she processed it within, (laughs) okay? Now, we've got problems because temptation today and ever since the fall comes through three avenues, the lust of the flesh, it's good for food, the lust of the eyes, okay, it was a delight to her eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it was able to make her wise. That's 1 John 2.16. But you see, we, because we are born with original sin, we have temptations that rise up right from within us. We don't have to have temptation from outside, although those do come as well. Now, the woman was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. The Bible informs us that Eve was indeed deceived by the serpent, but Adam knowingly took of the fruit and ate. Why did he do it? You know why I think he did it? Because you go all the way back to when he woke up and he saw Eve. And there's, in the Hebrew, an exclamation. Wow! This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is woman. I don't know what Eve looked like, but she must have been something. And he was alone, and he knew that there were no animals that were created that were suitable to him, and this one that God had created from his rib was suitable to him, and I think that he was quiet while the temptation was taking place because he did not want to lose that. That's my own summation of that, and I'll let God correct me. But there's some reason 
It says he was with her. He gave, she gave him of the fruit to her husband and they ate of it, Adam who was with her. He was with her. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. That's in 1 Timothy 2.14. So I don't want to have any pushback from saying it was a woman that was deceived. Okay? The Bible teaches that. And we need to grapple with that. The man wasn't deceived. He went into it with his eyes wide open. Now, the couple's behavior was bold and clear disobedience to God's one command. And whether deceived or not, both Adam and Eve sinned. Both of them sinned. And their sin can be seen by at least two distinct features. Number one, they disobeyed the revealed will of God. God told them not to eat. They ate, directly disobeying God's word to them. That's just clear. It's clean cut. And simply defined, sin is any act or intent in disobeying God's revealed will. This casting off God's authority is also called lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4. So sin is disobeying the clearly revealed will of God, deceived or not. And then secondly, they obeyed Satan by believing his lies. They did it by choice. Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan following him in disobedience. God said, don't eat. The devil said, you will surely not die. They weighed it, and they went with the devil. (laughs) The staggering thing is, people, regenerate people, because I trust most of you in this auditorium and listening are regenerate. That's what happens every time we sin. It doesn't just overrun us. We, we choose to sin and go against the devil's or go against God's desire for us. We know what it is. And what do we do? We did, sin itself is deceptive. The devil is deceptive. We got a lot against us. That's why we need the word of God to keep us on the straight and narrow because it's so easy to choose what is wrong. You see, they did not act in true independence, though. They, they might have thought they were being independent, okay? Because they merely substituted their allegiance from God to obeying Satan rather than God. It's important to understand that God never created man or humanity with the capacity for complete independence or autonomy. People either humbly submit to the will of the Creator God Or they go against his will and in rebellion fall under the rule of Satan by intention or default. And the deceitfulness of sin often makes people think that they're being independent. They're making their own choices. They're they're choosing for themselves, following their own will. When in reality, they are following the will of the evil one. Bob Dylan years ago wrote a song, You Just Gotta Serve Somebody. May be the devil or it might be God, but you've got to serve somebody. And he only gave those two options. Um, I don't know where he got that from. Surely wasn't from the culture that he lived out. It's from the Bible. First John 5:19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but, and this is beautiful, Jesus gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. There's the hope. 
But what we face when we are choosing to sin, each time, it's a choice. Now, a vain attempt to cover their own sin, we see that as we look at verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. When the man and woman realized that they had sinned against God, their very first experience was to feel shame. That that was a brand new feeling, a brand new sense. They felt naked. And it's implied that after their sin, their nakedness made them feel ashamed. Mistakenly, thinking that it was a mere outward problem, the couple sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings But that sense of nakedness remained just as strong. It didn't work. It was a failure. How utterly sad and inadequate. God's regents of the earth. That's who he created Adam to be in his own image. To reign over the earth. Now they're huddled together and attempting to alleviate one of the first effects of their sin. They felt naked and exposed, and for the first time since their creation, they felt unsafe, exposed. And so they attempted to somehow deal with this new and awful sense of nakedness. And prior to their sin, we read (coughs) that the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's why I say the first experience they experienced was shame. And at that time, the man and his wife were completely confident and content and and unafraid and sincere in every conceivable way. But after their sin, they felt compelled to do something to change that awful sense of shame. So in a vain attempt, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their loins. This is the first instance of people doing works righteousness. I grew up in a a faith that teaches works righteousness. This is how you gain acceptance with God as you do good works. And if you do enough of them, you won't have to suffer in purgatory that long because nobody can do enough. You see, good works, doing good things to make up for sin, helping others, giving money to causes, being religious... Every religion other than biblical Christianity is based upon works righteousness. Do you realize that? This is amazing. And I'm not saying Baptist. I'm not saying Lutheran. I'm not even saying Protestant. I'm just saying biblical Christianity, which says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that there is life in Jesus Christ if you will but repent and believe and entrust your soul to him who died in as a substitute for you and paid the penalty for sin then you are safe and delivered from this evil world as we read earlier from galatians 1 4 you guys the thing is is that you can't do enough good things to tip the scale All other religions keep prescriptions. Hinduism, Islam, Shintoism, Judaism, moralism. All prescribe certain things that need to be done in order to gain acceptance and peace with the deity. It is not possible. Biblical Christianity 
shows us that we trust in another to have accomplished that on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is the dividing line. Now, there are five other effects that the couple experienced. Uh, the first being death. God told them that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, the immediate impact of the couple's sin was death. The biblical meaning of death is separation, as I've already mentioned. And you can listen last week, I explained that there is physical death where the soul is separate from the physical body. There is spiritual death where the soul is separate from their source of life, God. And then there is eternal death when if you die without having repented of your sin and you're separate from God and you die in that state, you not only experience physical death, but you will then experience eternal death. That is where you will be separated from your source of life, which is God, your creator, for all eternity in hell. Now, the couple, even though they were still physically alive, they were separate from God by their sin. And they, they had experienced spiritual death, a separation from their source of life. In the moment that they sinned, their lives experienced a catastrophic change. This was so cool in, in the tribe that we worked in, in Indonesia, the Taliabo people. Um, in order to demonstrate that, I, I cut a branch off a tree. And I brought it in, and I held up the branch, and I said, is this branch alive or dead? And they all said, it's dead. I said, correcto mundo, that's it. A little Spanish in there. <laughs> and I said, look at the leaves are all green and everything. And then I nailed it up against the wall in back of me that I would be teaching at for the next six months. And each week we came back, I said, wow, look at it. Doesn't look so alive now, does it? And I said, that is like spiritual death. That's separation from the source of life. And every one of us since the fall has now been born separate from eternal life. That was a good illustration. It worked well. They not only experienced spiritual death, they also experienced guilt. They had concern for their outward nakedness, which was only symptomatic of an inner spiritual problem. That, that spiritual death brought something to the surface that they had never experienced. That was a guilty conscience. They felt naked. And although God had always lovingly supplied all of their needs, now the couple jointly neglected to turn to him. Instead, they came up with their own idea to cover their nakedness by making themselves coverings, but their efforts were an epic failure. The fig leaves had no power to cleanse a guilty conscience. Just like we'll see in chapter 4 that Cain's offering of his fruit and his vegetables had no way to cover sin. So they experienced death. They experienced guilt. A third effect of sin was alienation. The alienation caused from their sin first manifested in the couple's foolish attempt to hide themselves from God. The one that they walked with in the garden in the cool of the day, now they heard him and they ran and hid. But they couldn't hide from Yahweh Elohim. When God called out to them, where are you? God was hardly duped. It's not like he lost track of where they were. He knew where they were hiding because he's God. 
But his call was providing them an opportunity to come clean with him, to humble themselves. That song was beautiful, Tracy, just, just beautiful. Notice it was God who initiated this conversation, not man. Man ran the other way. God is the one that pursued. But Adam hid. And apart from God, people always run away from him because of their own guilt and fear of exposure. But the Bible teaches that when God seeks us, our response should be to seek him in return. I know what you're thinking. Oh, in Romans it says no man seeks God. No, not one. Ah, au contraire. In Psalm 27, 8, it says, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Yahweh, I will seek. Huh. And then in Isaiah 56, or 55, 6, it says this, Seek Yahweh while he may be found, and call upon him when he is near. When is he near? He's near right now today, right here. My words are God's words, and he is present with us, and he is near right now today. Seek him. Call on him, and he will respond to you right now today. So we've got death, we've got guilt, we've got alienation from God, and we've got fear. Adam's response to God's call was, I was afraid. Brand new. First time ever experienced. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. No, he wasn't. This is post-fig leaves, people. (laughs) He had the covering on, and he was not feeling it, so to speak. (laughs) Good grief. This is the guilt of sin that leads to alienation from God and fear of him. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight. That alone should just frighten the daylights out of us. We're not getting away with anything. He sees everything we do. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The man and the woman's efforts to cover their sin and its results upon them failed completely. God's response to the man's worthless excuse was to immediately call him to accountability for his sin. Have you eaten from the tree? And what is it that you've done? said to the woman. Mankind was created to live in dependence upon him and to live under his authority. That is our proper position. God, us. Okay? Not us, God, or us, God. As a creator, he has every right in the world to call man to accountability for his actions. And here we see the first instance of God standing in judgment over mankind. And this is but a harbinger of that final day of judgment where all people everywhere will be held accountable for their behavior, whether good or bad. And the Bible teaches, so then each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God, Romans 14, 12. Now, don't let the deceitfulness of sin deceive your thinking to think you just die and go into the earth and there's nothing afterwards. This whole book tells us something completely different. And along with that something completely different, which is judgment, there is a way out. He doesn't leave us without hope. And that is the good news of the Bible. But so there's death and there's guilt and there's alienation. Fourthly, there's fear. Fear of judgment. And fifthly, 
There's this denied responsibility. In a sense, this result of sin is another display, maybe a further display of alienation, because first their alienation was felt between them and their creator God, but then now we see that that alienation actually affected their relationship as man and woman together. Because when God asked Adam if he had eaten from the tree, Adam immediately blamed Eve, saying, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam was indicting God for giving the woman to him. That was his first response, blame-shifting. But the real matter here is that Adam refused to take personal responsibility for his sin. He blamed the woman instead. But the woman did no better, right? Because when God addressed her saying, what is it you have done now? She blamed the serpent. So God, by questioning them, provided them both with an opportunity to take personal responsibility and confess that they had disobeyed him. Instead, both of them shifted the blame away from themselves and blamed others. Tell me, do we have anything going on in our culture today with victimhood? What more is that than blaming anything and everything and everyone else other than our own personal responsibility for what we've chosen to do and suffered for. It's blaming everybody else. This is sin, people. This is a result of sin that has come down through the generations from parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, all the way to us. How far things have come. How utterly far things have come from that idyllic Garden of Eden that God created for the first couple. No longer the garden of delights, but now one of rebellion and sin and death and fear and alienation. How grieved God must have been. Now all of us know of rejection. Rejection by maybe somebody that we've loved or a child that we poured our life into. And they reject us. And you think of all the good things that you want to pass on to them, all the good things experiences that you were looking forward to and they've just rejected you outright how much more so God and his creation Adam and Eve how far our first parents fell when they believed the lie rather than the truth of God and because of their sin sin entered the world and has brought nothing but grief and shame and death in its wake Now, looking back at that sobering story of Adam and the woman in the garden provides us with insight how things moved from an idyllic garden of delights to a very different experience, an experience where the couple experienced spiritual death. And we know today that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And shame, filled with guilt, leading to a sense of insecurity and exposure And foolishness by attempting to work and make fig leaves to cover and get rid of that shame works righteousness. They became fearful and afraid of God, the God that created them and provided everything for them. They became alienated in their relationships with their creator, but then with each other. And then they practiced blame-shifting away from personal responsibility, each one of them. By questioning Adam and Eve in the way that he did, 
God drew them to come to grips with their disobedience and take responsibility for their actions. This was the first instance recorded in Scripture where God calls people to give an account for the response to his word. But it won't be the last, and it isn't. God designed men and women to live dependently under his authority, and everyone will one day stand before him to answer for their thoughts and actions. Whether good or evil, the Lord will search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds, Jeremiah 17.10. In Romans 14.12, it says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In 1 Peter 4.5, it explains, everyone will give an account to him, God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And maybe in summation of all of this, is the staggering words of Revelation chapter 20. We are accountable to God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before this throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. That would be the one we're in, and we're not included in this judgment. Believers who have trusted Jesus Christ are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to us, to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's a book of life. But then the dead were judged from the things which, they were, which were written in the books, and according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up dead which were in them, the grave, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is a final judgment. It comes at the end of the tribulation, right before God recreates the heavens and the earth. But to those that are in Christ, this is the good news. Because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they'll not be judged at the great white throne judgment or any other judgment because they have already been found guilty and judged. And Jesus Christ took away that judgment and the payment for that. He bore our sins. He bore the judgment for our sins. And after it was all done, he said, it is finished. <laughs> and we rest in that. Remember that new identity I talked to you about that you have in Jesus? And that every sin that you perpetuate is a lie against the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. So don't be liars, okay? Stop it. And I know we sin. And when we do, we need to run back to the gospel and say, thank you. Thank you for paying for that, Jesus. You see, as we go to communion today, I want you to take a moment and do what Paul once encouraged the Corinthians to do. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now, this is a test that young people can do, kids can do. Are you really believing Jesus Christ to have paid for your sins? But it's also a test that Christians that have been Christians for a long time can do because sometimes we can get on this track 
where we just started going to church, maybe with our wife or maybe with our husband or maybe with a friend, and we just kind of go along with the flow and everything, and we really don't know if we're saved or not. Oh, believe. Believe today. Settle that so that you can rest in the fact that it is finished for you and you will not face the judgment of God because Jesus did on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sobering text of Genesis chapter 3 and all that it accounts for. And Lord, honestly, um, it is staggering to think of what their sin, one sin, has done. Oh, Lord, strike our hearts with the seriousness of sin. And lead us not into temptation as we pray. Father, deliver us, we pray, as only you can. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.